So uh, I got a couple things before we get going here. The first one is, uh, if you ever look at Element's core values, one of our core values that we always talk about is beauty. Uh, if you look through the book of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, you will constantly see that God is a God who loves beauty and decoration and light and sound and all these things. And we have a great team who do stuff like this. You know, I, seriously, I, I was coming through the week and not realizing how exactly it's all going to play out. And then I come in yesterday to reset the chairs. You're welcome. <laughs> Some other guys. And I walk in and Mikey had put the graphic up and I just went, Yeah. And that's just cool. So, uh, like, uh, Jessa Youngblood, I don't think she's here in this service. Terry Jafruti, Mikey, uh, Carissa, just a bunch of people helped out. And if any of you guys are here, just thank you so much because it's, it's cool. You make talking about the Song of Solomon all summer long much more enjoyable. Because <laughs> when I start get going on a tangent, it'd be like, oh, the decorations are at least nice. <laughs> cool. If you are new, welcome to Element. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. And this is also another thing. This week, we're actually changing. We usually do the NIV. We're actually switching to a version called the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, it's a word-for-word translation. If you want to know all about it, look at our website, uh, ourelement.org. I did a whole blog post about it this week. So if you want to read why we're switching and why we're using it, we think it's a great translation. It's, it's readable, it's understandable, but it's much more of a word-for-word translation. So if you don't have one and you would like to use one, you can use one this morning. There's also sermon notes and all the communion tables around the room. If you have an app called Uversion, you can click on live, brings us up by GPS, and you get all the sermon notes as well. With the Song of Solomon, we have, we have a web page. You can go to ironment.org forward slash SOS, like help, right, SOS. Song of Solomon, and you'll get articles, uh, book lists, uh, you, uh, if you want to ask any question you want, and I don't even have to answer that, it's like a question from a girl about girl things, we'll have women answer those questions for you on, I mean, it, seriously, anything that comes up in the midst of this study, feel free to ask those, and we're going to answer those questions for you. Uh, this is, Song of Solomon is a subject a lot of people want to run away from, uh, and, and we cannot run away from it, especially in the midst of the culture that we are. So, why don't you stand with me, reading God's Word, and we'll just dive right into this puppy. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would help us as a people to understand sex and sexuality and joy and hope and life together and what that's supposed to look like and that we could then reflect that so that our culture who seems to be drinking at places of muddy waters can see what good clean fresh water looks like amen have a seat so this uh, series is our summer of love gonna be a little bit longer than summer it's gonna be 16 weeks uh, Element started three years ago with about 35 people. We used to bring our lawn chairs into this room and we'd sit around. It was half full of trash, so we started to actually clean that up. We had a heater that kind of sat over in this corner, and half the time we forgot to fill it with propane, so the room was, was always cold. In, the, in those early days, none of us knew uh, what we were doing. We never planted a, a church before, or plants, because we had plants and trees that just kept dying on us all the time. We still don't know what we're doing by the fact that our plants keep dying. Anyway, but I read a whole bunch of books on church planting, and a lot of them didn't help. Three did. One of them was by a guy named Tom Rainier. 
And one of the things that he said in the second chapter was when you plant a church, you must go through the Song of Solomon. And his reasoning is valid. He says people need to know how God sees love, marriage, sex, life, singleness, dating, what it all looks like in God's eyes. Young men getting married need to know how to honor their wives. Young women need to see what a good man looks like. And married couples need to see God's intent, not only just for the bedroom, but for their entire lives. Because God is created as, as physical and spiritual creatures. So thus, we are doing the Song of Solomon. And my disclaimer in this is if, if you are single... You know, that's okay. I do not want you to feel out of place. 90% of people will get married. So if you are single, this might be good for you as well because we're going to move and talk about some of the singleness and dating and things like that. If you're you're engaged, don't feel any pressure to get married tomorrow. That's not the point of the study. We just want to talk about what God views in sex and sexuality. And 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 I might give you pause, me talking about sex for 16 weeks, right? Because you never know what I'm going to say. Me neither sometimes. But, but it's, it's not... Actually, today will probably be the most about sex that we talk about anything. So it, it'll be a little bit of sex, but a lot of other stuff involved. Reconciliation and fighting. A lot of things in this. So just stick around and go with me. Don't freak out too much. It'll all be mostly PG. By that, I mean pretty good. <laughs> and today, we're going to start with the historical look of how sex has gone through uh, the ages. Hopefully it will be Memorial, not just because Memorial Day weekend, but hopefully it will be Memorial and all this. Uh, throughout history, sex and sexuality has been seen in three different ways, inside and outside the church. It's been seen as a god and worshipped as such. It's seen as something that's dirty. And then there's an entirely new way of looking at it, and we call this biblically. Okay, so we're going to take each of these and talk about them. The first one of these is sex as God. Uh, this is when you give your money to it, your time to it, you study it through pictures and magazines, your identity comes out of it. Your whole life is given over to it. If you ever worn a spearmint rhino hat or t-shirt and thought you were cool, this is probably you. All right? So you'd never know what I'm going to say, right? There you go. Uh, And this is not something new. All throughout antiquity, there are things that have been worshipped other than God. We are told in Scripture, if we don't worship God, we will worship something because we're designed to worship something. So I'm going to show you some things that were worshipped throughout antiquity. This right here is a picture. This is Artemis. Artemis, among other things, was also the goddess of youth and beauty. Uh, You see this today, we worship her, Vogue Cosmo. There's no grandmas on the cover, Victoria's Secret, right? This is Botox and surgery. People today want to pop Viagra out of Pez dispensers, you know, all because we worship Artemis. Uh, When we worship her, we're addicted to youthfulness, immaturity. Everybody wants to be 16 again. And people with gray hair or, God forbid, no hair or crow's feet, we want to try and get rid of all these things when those things should be seen as a sign of maturity and beauty. Uh, This next one, this is Baal or Baal. And what he is, is he was the god of wealth and prosperity. In America, we have more malls than high school today. Uh, More people will go to the mall each week than attend church in the United States. More Americans will declare bankruptcy this year than graduate from college. We work more hours than any other nation in the world. Why? We want more money because we love ball. Man, this this guy's. Uh, This next one, this is Gad. It sounds like some of you, right? Oh, my Gad. This is, is, boy, you guys are slow this morning. (laughs) Gad was the god of luck and chance, so when he is worshipped, like foolish uh, risk-taking becomes common. People blame their lives on chance rather than taking responsibility for themselves. This is like lotto tickets and, and rabbit's foot. So if you want to see how this works, you should really come watch one of our softball games. Because, because 
if if someone's been on a good hitting streak, I mean, they will just they won't wash their underwear or their socks. I mean, you'll see them walking and they got their bat and they'll like do this on the bat and they'll swing it like five times and smack their cleats, Britt Stanley, you know, and then and they get to bat. Now Ronnie tells me this is resetting myself, refocusing. No, it's Gad. It's it, it's 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 all Gad. Uh, some people put saints on the dashboard of their cars. You know, this this is Gad. Like. It's, it's like this tall. It can't grab the wheel anyway. I don't know why you put in there. Uh, this next god is, is Molech. Molech uh, required the sacrifice of children to appease him. Uh, I feel like our nation really worships him. When he's worshipped, people want to run away from being parents. Uh, do we practice child sacrifice? Well, in America, one out of every three conception ends in abortion. Parents neglect their kids. They, on, on average, parents will shop six hours a week and spend 45 minutes a week playing with their kids. I kind of think that we do worship this guy. Uh, this is Nebo. Not like Captain Nebo. He doesn't have a sub or anything, but this, this is Nebo. He's the god of wisdom, wisdom, literature, and education. And there's nothing wrong with wisdom, literature, and education. Go to college, get a degree, all, all of that. But sometimes people listen to a, do, a dork with a degree more than they ever listen to God. And we need to be people who listen to God. Say, oh, he's educated. He's smart. Well, he must. When people worship Nebo, they, they want to go after academics and scholarship and science with the arrogant pride that wants to deny God. Now, in the New Testament, there are some as well. That I don't have cool pictures to show you, but uh, there's coveting that it talks about in the New Testament. This is wanting what your neighbor has. Today we call this advertising. Uh, 93% of teenage girls and 34% of all Americans list shopping as their favorite activity. United States of America, more money will be spent on advertising this year than the entire world's gross domestic product of 100 years, to go, years ago. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who is covetous, there's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The stomach. Do we worship the stomach? Of course we do. Gluttonous, drunkenness. Uh, Philippians 3.19 says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds and earthly things. Now, I know how this is because my mind joneses for certain things sometimes, like, like uh, jalapeno potato chips or jalapeno potato chips, however you want to say it, right? Or, you know, ice cream or, or something like that. That's how I always say it. I'm sorry. Uh, in, in America, 71% of people are overweight by an average of 10 pounds. 300,000 people every year in America will die from their diet and their inactivity. Some parts of the world, people starve to death. In America, we eat ourselves to death. The average American drinks 55 gallons of soda every year. We eat 53 teaspoons of sugar every day. Supermarkets today have 250% more items than they did 20 years ago. This God is very popular. And then the God of self, simply having yourself as a center of your universe that leads to all the other stuff. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen uh, with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But sex as a God has also been a problem. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people were always surrounded with false ideologies that treated sex like a religion with this type of devotion. In the Song of Solomon, God is actually talking to his people in the midst of a Canaanite religion that surrounded them. The imagery in Canaanite religion uh, had their god and goddesses. They were, they were naked in sexual positions. All their poetry was very crass. Hmm, kind of sounds like today. The main god of sex worship at this time was a goddess called Asherah. Here's her picture. Okay, that's, yeah, 
Yeah, let's, let's worship that. Yeah. Uh, they, they had uh, temple prostitution as part of this. There's an untapped strategy for you, right? Temple prostitution. Uh, they, around the country, they would have phallic Asherah poles where people would gather and have pagan sexual orgies. Uh, and, and really, the, the ancient culture is, is just as messed up as ours. In the New Testament, Greek culture that dominated the world at the time the New Testament was written, uh, pe- men would have uh, inappropriate relations with small boys, pedophilia, and it was considered normal. There was a religion in the Roman Empire to Aphrodite, and in her temple, she had 1,000 temple prostitutes. So you'd go to worship at the temple, and you would have sex at the temple. It's like, hey, I'm going to church. I don't know what your problem is. That's, you know, that, that's where we're going. And this is why, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul comes in, and he starts laying down all these things, especially 1 Corinthians 7. And he's like, look, guys, you're in the middle of Corinth in this messed up culture. And so, no, you can't have sex with your mom. You can't have sex before marriage. You can't have sex outside of marriage. You can't have sex with the same gender. You, you, you can't have sex with an animal. God designs it a certain way, and he has to lay it all down because there's so much confusion in that. And you fast forward to our day. Sex is still treated like a god. It is religion. A professor at the University of Virginia in the sociology department compiled this list of statistics. I'm just going to read them to you real quick. The average person has their first sexual experience in America at age 16. Teenage girls who are sexually active have higher rates of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, eating disorders, depression, and suicide. One-third of all children are aborted. The one-third that are born are born out of wedlock. Pornography is a $60 billion a year industry. Globally, $12 billion of that is spent by Americans. That is more than pro basketball, uh, baseball, and football combined. America's favorite pastime is not baseball. Just letting you know. In the past 10 years, Americans have spent more on pornography than we have spent on foreign aid. When people say, oh, we should help the people in the world, we need to really get more money to them. Well, if everybody stopped looking at porn and gave it away, we could really help more people. Over 200 pornography films are made in the United States every single week. That's more than one an hour. Porn sites are 12% of all internet sites. Porn is 25% of all search engine requests. 30% of internet users cop to viewing pornography. 20% of men admit to it at work. And 13% of women admit to it at work. Every second in America, $3,000 is spent on pornography. 28,000 internet users right now are viewing pornography. Every second. Now. 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 90% of 8- to 16-year-olds have viewed pornography online. The average child sees pornography advertently or inadvertently by the age of 11. The number one viewers of pornography are boys 12 to 17 years old. If you have a 12 to 13-year-old boy and you think they're not old enough to have the talk, statistically, you are too late. You need to have the talk now. If they have a computer in their room and, and no safeguards and Internet access, you're a crazy person. Okay? You're just crazy. Uh, the USA Today recently did an article that said most junior high boys expect to have a naked photo of their girlfriend on their phone these days. 10% of American adults admit to being addicted to porn. 28% of that 10% are women. And where 10% of men will cop to being addicted, 70% of men said they have visited a porn site in the last month. 55% of child abusers and 71% of child molesters commit, uh, say they are pornography addicts. Now, do you see why it is important for the church to talk about this? I mean, if we're not, everybody else is. We must step into the discussion how God has called us to step into the discussion, and we are sticking our heads in the sand. We live in a confused culture where sex is religion. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that a man was worship, supposed to worship the Creator, but we have started to worship His creation. And if we don't talk about it, everybody else will. So, there is hope for us to be worshipers instead of idolaters. I get to eat good food. I get to have sex with my wife. I get to enjoy creation, but I worship Jesus. Sex is not God. God is God. Sex is not to be worshipped apart from God or treasured or valued apart from God.
Now, because sex has become God to some people, other people have rebelled against that and pushed against it and said, we've got to get rid of it. What they've done with it is gross, therefore sex is gross. The second position that people have today is that sex is dirty. Sex is dirty. This is the classic fundamental church youth group view. Sex is dirty, sex is nasty, sex is vile, sex is wrong. Save it for the one you love. Like I said, you guys are slow. This is a very bad overreaction to sex. This is common in, in the days of the, of the New Testament. You know, this was a very common reaction. Oh, everybody's running around doing it. We're going to rebel against it. And they said, oh, it's dirty and nasty. But there's another side of this as well, where Plato comes in from Greek philosophy. And the Stoics have this negative impact on the early church. What he says is that there's two parts. There is body and spirit. And your body is, is not good. Your body, physical flesh, it's evil. But the spirit is all good. So the best thing you can do is like leave your physical body in the world and go live a spiritual life. Live as a monk on a mountain on top of, on top of a mountain somewhere. Whatever that happens with the body is gross. That is not biblical thinking, but it became prevalent in the early church. Both of these things led to some early church fathers having some very warped views on sex. Tertullian and Ambrose said they essentially preferred the extinction of the human race to continued marital intercourse. And Tertullian was married. I don't know what his wife was like, but okay. I mean, they said if nobody had sex, no one would be born, it'd usher in the end, yay. Uh, Origen said the Song of Solomon was all allegory and he castrates himself. I don't know in what order that happens. So he's like, if it caused you to stumble, cut it off. Apparently he did. We will give you a different view through the Song of Solomon. There is a separate option. Just letting you know. Uh, Christostom said there is no sex before the fall. A after sin in the world took place, that is when sex began to take place. Jerome, the church father, would throw himself into brambles or sticker bushes when he saw a cute girl. It's like, oh, she's cute. Boom, into the bush he goes. And he'd be like, ow, and then he would stop lusting and thinking about things. Gregory of Nyssa said Adam and Eve didn't have sex. There was a special tree in the garden that you ate of it, and then you got pregnant. Not kidding. <laughs> Not kidding. Can you imagine a dude like... I'm not touching that tree, man. <laughs> guys do. Uh, by the 5th century, priests became forbidden to marry. Celibacy was then promoted as the best life. And if you did get married, you're only supposed to have sex or procreation and not enjoy it. So in the Middle Ages, the church comes along and they say, well, we're going to write manuals for everybody, what they can, can do and can't do in their bedrooms. I mean, just what you want, right? Men who have never seen a naked woman telling you what to do with a naked woman. It's kind of crazy. So it's like all these certain days you can do it and can't do it. And by the end, after they wrote this, half of the year was illegal for you to have sex in. Hey, honey, it's Tuesday. Nope, sorry, it's Tuesday. Can't. No. I mean, it's just crazy stuff, right? Okay, maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, in, in the Victorian ages, in the, in the Middle Ages, modesty comes into, in, into full-blown fruition. And uh, this is when women started wearing full-length gowns because they thought if you saw a woman's ankle, you could lust. Uh, then they started to notice, oh, look, tables have ankles on them. And this is when you get full-length tablecloths because you don't want to see the ankle because, you know, a guy may see that and get turned on by the table leg. If you get turned on by a table, <laughs> seek professional counseling because you need it. Now, you go to the present day. Many Christians have a poor view of sex. And, and, we, and Christians seem to be only be known by what they are against. Oh, fornication is bad, adultery bad, porn's bad. It's all true, but what is positive and, and what is good in this? Uh, so I have actually seen books by some older Christian women that give terrible demonic advice. They say things like, sex is for men, it's gross, you're not going to like it, missionary position only, only for making babies, and frequently as possible. It's like, really? Now, as kind as I can be in some of this, <clears throat> there are some of you 
in here and you have been molested or abused and you see sex as gross, but that is because your experience with it has been gross. Sex is not gross. What happened to you was a sin. And God longs to redeem us so we have a proper view of the things he has created. And if you have sinned a lot or been sinned against, we need a Romans chapter 12, verse 2, renewing of our minds, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. God renews our minds so we know what his perfect will is. Sex is not God. Uh, sex is not gross. And what is is sex is a gift. Sex is a gift that God has given us. Uh, to steward, to enjoy, to protect in the context of marriage, to share, is to be treasured and saved and given and cultivated in marriage. At Jeremiah 2.13, God says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is speaking about the truth of what he has provided and that I keep giving you clean clean water and you guys keep running off somewhere else and going to drink something else you know i have clean water here but you're like i don't want that i'm going to go dig it out of a hole and drink muddy nasty water this is when we run talk to the wrong counselors look at the wrong websites the wrong magazines all the movies we watch they're all giving muddy water that's dug out of a terrible hole and our culture is thirsty and the more we drink muddy water the sicker our culture gets now as i said by the by the fifth century priests were forbidden to marry and I, I don't think that's a natural state. I think God has blessed marriage. He's called it a wonderful thing. I think a lot of the problems in churches that push celibacy, a lot of the problems they have are because they push so much celibacy. And God says it's not good for a man to be alone. You know, when men get older and older, they've been single longer and longer, they get a little weird. Have you ever met them? See, you know, right there, right there. Anyway, so during, during the Reformation, when the Protestant church comes into being, there are three guys most well-known who, who put out uh, into the, the Reformation, and they brought back a biblical view of marriage. And I just want to hit these guys real quick. And again, today is like an historical look at a bunch of stuff. But I want to tell you about these guys. The first guy is right here. His name is Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, he is a priest in the 1500s, and there were rules and regulations to be followed that the church gave him to be lived to the letter. One of these rules was actually no sausage during Lent. And he loves sausage. So he's like, what's the deal with this? And so he looks through the scriptures, which is where we should always look, and he finds no regulation against sausage during Lent. But he also found out something else. There's no prohibition against marriage either. In 1522, he with 11 other priests write a petition to Rome. And this petition was called Petition to Allow Priests to Marry or at least Wink at Their Marriage. Meaning like, oh, I don't see it. Go ahead. You know, that, that kind of thing. So shortly thereafter, he marries a, a woman named Anna Reinhardt. She was a widow. She had three children. He comes in. He marries her, redeems this woman. There's a father to these kids, and they go on to have four more children. Just next guy is John Calvin. Uh, I don't think he always had the uh, big stoic beard or anything, but uh, John Calvin is a strong presence uh, in, the, in the Reformation. One of the things he used to do at his church services in Geneva was after service, he would lock the doors. Send you outside, lock the doors, you couldn't come back in. He said, Christians, having been fed and equipped, refreshed and nourished, are to be living out in the world. The theologians at his time said, well, you know, only things that, that are of value would happen inside the church walls. And he's like, no, 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 no. People are to live their lives outside the walls. And so Calvin always saw life meaning to be lived. And so a lot of the reformers wrote sermons about how work is a calling. Geneva today, based upon what Calvin did, is still seen as a humanitarian center. Uh, under his leadership in the city in the 1500s, he promoted laws that supported family, outlawed spousal abuse, elevated marriage as institution, hospitals were built, the education system was overhauled, and they instituted what was called a no-child-left-behind policy, where all children got an education. It is simply astounding. Now, John Calvin comes in immensely, um, marries a lady named Adelaide uh, de Burr. They had one child who died in infancy. 
1549, after only nine years of marriage, his wife dies. And Calvin loves her. She is de- he is devastated. He writes this, I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life. Uh, Calvin would never marry because no one held the stature of Adelaide in his life. Uh, and lastly, this is Martin Luther. Ta-da! He's probably the only everybody knows about, not King Jr., Martin Luther, okay, this guy. Uh, to understand Luther, 1500s, you have to know he planned to live his entire life celibate. Okay? He, he, is, he is a monk. And so he lives in a former monastery. We would call this like a big bachelor pad for, for dudes. It had a cool name. It was called the Black Cloister. It's like, yeah, that's, that's a dude place. And he never did much to attract himself to the ladies. Uh, he actually wrote this. Before I was married, the bed was not made for a whole year and became foul with sweat. Okay? Uh, Luther had some serious digestive issues going on. He actually bragged. He wrote this. If I break wind in Wittenberg, they smell it in Rome. <laughs> He's a funny guy. Uh, he thought that his splatulence was a way to ward off spiritual attacks, too. Uh, but he's also he's a human man. Uh, he wrote to one of his friends that he wasn't immune to sexual desires. Uh, he did a sermon on Isaac's marriage to Rebecca out of the book of Genesis. Isaac was 40 years old when he met his bride. And, so this, is, and this is what he writes. He goes, to bear and overcome sexual desires until the age of 40 is truly a grievous and great burden. You know, Isaac might have been the original 40-year-old version. Luther may have been the second. I'm not sure. You know, uh, Luther wrote and preached a lot about marriage. So he starts, he starts writing this stuff. It starts getting out. And all of a sudden, uh, he starts accusing the monasteries of being worse than brothels. Because what they did was that he said, this is sin because you're forcing people to take vows of singleness and celibacy in a legalistic way. The nuns in these convents started secretly reading Luther on the importance of marriage. I mean, he was urging family and friends to help break them out. Something that was punishable by death. He had a death sentence on his head because of this. Now, nuns at Marienthron, which is a, which is a cloister, wrote a secret letter to Luther and asked for his help because they wanted to get out. They give this letter to a guy named Leonard Kopp, who's a 59-year-old merchant who delivers fish to some of the, the convents each night. Luther gets the letter. He comes up with this plan that in the early hours in Easter 1523, Cops team goes in. They pull the horses in with all the fish barrels. They, they drop off the full barrels, take the empty ones, but the empty ones were full of nuns. And he walks right, goes right back out the door. One of these nuns would be, actually become Luther's wife. Uh, Luther would get the girls home to their families or find them husbands, except for a lady named Katharina von Bora. He actually almost married her off twice to other people, but she kept coming back to him. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, he didn't want to marry her because he had this death sentence on his head. He didn't want to put her through that. But he came to love her. Actually, in his writings, he starts to call her Katie, my rib, because he was so close to her. Uh, they had uh, six kids, and they also adopted six more. And Luther writes this. He says, there is no sweeter union than that in a good marriage. He said he couldn't live without their union together. Two of their daughters met an early death, but because of how they comforted each other and loved each other and their hope in Christ, they helped him to always press forward. Now, Luther died in, in 1546, and Katie goes on to live another, I think, uh, uh, nine years without him. No, seven years without him. She said it's hard to sleep, it's hard to eat when he's not around. But because of what they learned together about Christ, she said this, that her desire was always to cling to Christ like a burr to address. This is what a godly marriage is supposed to bring. These kind of views. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because marriage is a gift. Sex is a gift. It's to help keep us pure in the context that God wills for his people. But it is not God and it is not gross. It's a gift that we learn from scripture and we learn from him. In the end, scripture, what it does is it gives you some multiple reasons that God gave us the gift of sex. And the first one is pleasure. 
Really? Yes. Pleasure. The Song of Solomon never mentions kids, just pleasure. Are you allowed to have pleasure? Yes. If sex was only for procreation, men would get an erection once every nine months, and that would be it. But that's not how it works. If you're married, ladies, you know that. Your husband's always like, hey, what's, what's going on? <laughs> it's not what, when, how. It is who you do it with. In marriage, made for pleasure. Second thing, it was made for children. Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Uh, there, there are, this, this is part of the blessing that God gives us in marital intimacy. Luther holds one of his kids on his knee, and he writes this, This is the best of God's blessing. Uh, it's made for oneness. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. Live in one house, sleep in one bed, worship one God. It was made for oneness. <clears throat> it was also made for comfort. Uh, when uh, David and Bathsheba lose their first child, in 2 Samuel 12, 24, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and they went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. They shared their bodies as a gift for each other for comfort. And lastly, it's made for protection. We have desires. These desires are meant to be made in marriage. And if we, they're not there and done correctly, we'll be open to temptation and sin. And in this series, the Song of Solomon, we hope to look with you what the Bible says about love, singleness, dating, intimacy, community, life, hope, reconciliation. All of these things go together in this. It is not just sex. It is about a whole bunch of things. And we really hope you join us for the whole thing. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, The ultimate purpose of marriage is to obey God, to find aid and counsel against sin, to call upon God, to seek love and educate children for the glory of God, to live with one's wife in, in the fear of God and bear the cross. But if there are no children, nevertheless, to live with one's wife in contentment and to avoid all lewdness with others. Sex is not God. It is not gross. We do not need to be ashamed of it. It is a gift. This is just like our great God gave his son for our sins so we can be redeemed people and understand the grace and truth that he calls us into. And we cannot and will never have a redeemed view of sex and sexuality and intimacy without a redeemed heart, without a redeemed life. And if you are a person who has never given your life to Christ, the Song of Solomon will make no sense to you as we go through it. And so that is a place where we have to start. You need Jesus. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you have never met Jesus, you need to pray with them about who Jesus is. Because he longs to redeem you. And when we have a redeemed life, we can fully understand what God intends. Uh, the band's going to come up. They will do a couple songs. Uh, and while they do, you're invited to take communion. Communion is where we take uh, the, the crack and we break it like Christ's body that was broken for us. We dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be this redeemed people who have redeemed hearts and lives and minds and understand what God has truly called us to. Uh, we worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall on the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. And you also worship by giving yourself to your spouse, if you're married, to your friends, by hanging out with them and loving them and helping them follow uh, in the paths that God has set before us as people. I mean, this is all part of giving. Uh, there's also some food and stuff in the back. Donut holes unless you guys eat them all. Okay, so there's donut holes in the back. Uh, coffee and stuff like that. Uh, get to know some other people. Uh, maybe get involved in a small group because we'll be discussing the Song of Solomon in, in all of the gospel communities. And so if you're in one, great. If you're not, let's get you plugged into one. You can talk all about it and be like, well, that was awkward Sunday morning. I don't know what to do. Uh, he said the word sex like a hundred times. Uh, you know, whatever. You'll get over it. You know, I'm, I'm sure that, that God will enjoy this, especially when we squirm just a little bit. Uh, he is good. 
And he calls in the community with others, community with him. And again, sex is a gift used properly in the correct way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who gives us gifts that we as a people seem to run headlong the wrong way with. But I ask that you would renew our hearts and our minds, that as a redeemed people, we would understand how and why you give us the gifts that you do. And that we would step into the hope and the purpose of those gifts. Father, for those in this room who are single and, and they're looking forward to the day of maybe just staying single and you've called them to that, that is amazing. And I ask that you would offer them much grace. For those who are single and really hoping one day to get married, I ask that you would show them how to live a life where the person that they meet, they can speak love and truth and grace into and they can keep themselves pure for that person. For those of us who are married, Father, and many of us have done and said some things that has caused conflict in the intimacy that we are supposed to share in our marriages. And yet you have paid for all of our sin at your cross. And I ask that we begin to be able to see that, that it has all been paid for by you and that our spouse doesn't need to be crucified because you have. And we can offer forgiveness and reconciliation and intimacy can be restored. Father, thank you for being a God that calls us to so much more than we ever understand or comprehend. But the deeper we walk with you, the deeper you pull us and the greater hope that you give. Have us live understanding who you are and what you have done for us as your people. And in turn, glorify you as our great God. Amen.